Hi there, this is Darren Spoo, pastor at First Baptist Church in Tulsa, and welcome to our weekly message podcast. We would invite you to join us in person Sunday morning at 8.30 and 11 o'clock in downtown Tulsa, or check out our webpage at tulsafbc.org. God bless you, and have a great week. So I am a muscle car fan, I have to admit. From the time I was a young child, I remember driving those 99-cent Hot Wheel cars across the the floor of my parents' living room. I've always been an enthusiast of American muscle cars. Firebirds, Camaros, Mustangs, Corvettes. Actually, uh, even when my family is driving around town today, I can't help but point them out. There's something about them that just attracts me to them. I love them. And after 15 years of marriage, my wife, out of her love for me, now points them out as well when we're driving down the road. When she points them out, I, I explain all about the car. As much information as I know, you know, the make, the model, whatever specs I know. And she smiles and nods and then turns another direction. Are there any other fans of muscle cars in the room? Has anyone tried to buy one to restore one? up. Maybe a couple hands go up. That's fun. Has anyone tried a 1970 Firebird? So when I was in college, I saved up money, pinching pennies here, there, and everywhere. You know how poor college students are. You're you're trying to save money everywhere you can just to make it by. Somehow, I managed to save enough money, $3,000, to buy what I thought was the perfect fixer-upper, a 1970 Firebird. It looked like a really good car and didn't look like it would need a lot of work from the outside. It had, um, it had a straight body, a fresh coat of white paint. It had some great looking rims, very little rust on the car. And so I thought I was getting a great deal. I drove it home. I um, then parked it. I would drive it a little bit here and there, but I had to finish out that semester before I could really look under the hood to see what I was getting into. It was that summer when I opened up the hood that I discovered something different. Anybody ever have buyer's remorse? (laughs) Yeah, that was me. So I discovered rather quickly that the car had not one or two, but three separate wiring harnesses. And they were all connected to various gauges and dials inside the driving compartment. Most of those gauges didn't even work. I looked underneath the engine and it looked like the frame had actually been welded together by several different car parts, not just the one body. It was amazing that it, when it was driving down the road, it didn't fall apart. And then the gas gauge itself didn't even work. So there were, there were moments I didn't know if I was going to run out of gas or not. Now, don't get me wrong. The car was a blast to drive. I loved to drive it down the road when I could actually get it going. But the car had seen better days that had been weathered. And I wonder if the same is true of us, if we can get past the veneer of, of our Sunday morning gathering with our, 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 our iron shirts and our optimistic smiles that we always put on in front of everyone here at church, if we too have been weathered and seen better days. Because if we're really honest, very few of us really have it all together. We all have problems. We all have had to, at times, mend our own hearts, pull ourselves up, just to make it one step to the next, even even more so in the middle of this post-COVID season. And we have problems coming at us from all angles. You know, pressures coming from the outside, whether it is uh, concerns about inflation, uh, 
feeling at the gas pump, from anybody that's been to the gas pump lately, um, political pressures, even wars and rumors of wars, and there's pressures that are coming at us from the inside as well. You know, whether it's, it's relational conflict, loneliness, poor health, or financial woes. And none of that actually takes into account what's going on our insides itself with, with our, our own mistakes, our, our own propensity to sin and, and all of those struggles internally that we have. And so if you open up the hood of our own lives, so to speak, we all have problems. We all look like there are things that are beyond our control. And sometimes it feels like we can't even fix those on our own. And then we look at God in the middle of those problems, in the middle of those struggles. And sometimes we even forget because our problems are so real and feel so mangled and and mixed all together that God is bigger than those problems. Instead, our problems serve as a signpost that stand staring at us in the face saying God is either unwilling or unable to step in to our problems. Now, we know that's not true, but still, our problems make us feel that way. So what do we do in the middle of that moment? I believe we can find hope from Scripture. And so this morning, we're going to look at, look at Luke chapter 23 to what I believe we'll find incredible hope when Jesus was walking through a moment that didn't look like it was going to have a good outcome. Now, we're finishing our teaching series this morning called Simply Jesus. We're through the last several weeks. We've looked at who Jesus was in the Gospel of Luke to see how we can find hope and comfort in and through Jesus. Last week, we looked at Jesus' most famous teaching from Luke 15, and we saw in a series of three parables God's great love for us. Today, we're going to look at a passage of Scripture that is rarely preached on because Jesus looks like he's marching towards defeat. Before we get there, a lot has happened between Luke 15 and Luke 23. Jesus had his triumphal entry into Jerusalem. Jesus had the Last Supper with the disciples. He washed the disciples' feet. He prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane. And then he was arrested. And it's in this place where where he's arrested, and it looks like all hope is lost, and he's defeated, and he looks weak, that we find Jesus in our passage. Just like, and in some ways, exactly the opposite of that muscle car that I had. Appearances are deceiving. Because while Jesus appears to be weak, there's a lot more going on behind the scenes. And I believe we can learn something incredibly powerful from Jesus' story here. As we can learn who God is and who God wants to be for us in the middle of whatever trial and struggle that we may walk through. Let's begin by praying. God, I thank you for today, and I thank you so much for your grace, for your peace, for your mercy. I pray, Lord, that you would cover over us. May you guide us. May you help us to know you at greater depths. May you help us to know how we can lean into you and trust you, no matter what we walk through. Lord, I even pray that that the words that you would share with us, that they wouldn't be my words, but you literally would grab our attention from your word, from the Bible. In Jesus' name, amen. If you have your Bible, turn to Luke 23. That's where we'll be spending most of our time. Before I read this passage, I just want to bring you up to date because after Jesus prayed and was arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane, there were a couple more things that happened. There was this this chaotic crowd that gathered around Jesus that arrested Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. The the chaotic crowd led by the, 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 the temple soldiers and the Pharisees and the Sadducees 
gathered together for two trials before we get to our passage. And in both those trials, people are shouting at Jesus, accusing Jesus, condemning Jesus, mocking Jesus. At one point, they actually blindfold Jesus and start hitting him. It's this crazy, chaotic scene. And then this, this mob of people grabs Jesus and they walk Jesus just before sunrise to Pilate's house. And that's where our passage picks up in Luke 23. So let's go ahead and read there the first few verses. Then the whole assembly rose and led him off to Pilate. And they began to accuse him, saying, We have found this man subverting our nation. He opposes payment of taxes to Caesar and claims to be Messiah, a king. So Pilate asked Jesus, Are you the king of the Jews? You have said so, Jesus replied. Then Pilate announced to the chief priests in the crowd, I find no basis for charge against this man. But they insisted, he stirs up people all over Judea by his teaching. He started here in Galilee and has come all the way here. I'm hearing this. Pilate asked if the man was a Galilean. When he learned that Jesus was under Herod's jurisdiction, he sent him to Herod, who was also in Jerusalem at that time. So as we enter into this first scene, we see Jesus in the middle of a trial, and we quickly discover that the chaos that's going on in that scene is nothing like our typical trial scene that we have here in the United States of America. After all, our own version of judicial system is based heavily on Aristotle's famous line that justice should be free from passion. In our typical courtroom setting, it's based off of the facts more than anything else. There may be a little bit of emotion that's thrown in from point to point, but it's based solely on the facts. That's not the case here at all, as we see that, that everyone around Jesus has this, this chaotic, passionate appeal. The Pharisees and the Sadducees, they're, they're throwing accusation after accusation at Jesus with anger. And there's some serious crimes that they're accusing Jesus of as well. They're saying that Jesus was trying to set himself up to be a king in the place of Caesar. Of course, Pilate didn't exactly calm the situation down. Instead of being a, a nice, peaceful judge, he entertained their thoughts. He listened to them. And then when he found out that he didn't have to make a decision, he passed the buck. He handed Jesus off to Herod, a man that was known to fly off the handle, the very single or the very same person that had John the Baptist arrested and beheaded. And then there's Jesus in the middle of all of this. And Jesus actually didn't entertain the, the accusations that were going on. He didn't enter in, take the bait of the Pharisees and the Sadducees as they were accusing him and condemning him, rather than even engaging with that dialogue or debate. He stood back. And I wonder if there's something in there for us as well, that you know, a scheme of the enemy is to steal, kill, and destroy. Satan wants nothing more than to find ways to take us down and take us out. And he often does that by reeling us into the chaos of whatever crisis we may be walking through. And, and let us focus on that and get us distracted with that instead of looking anywhere else. But in our passage, we cannot confuse the chaos for God's weakness. God is so very much so in control. After all, what does it take more strength to do? Does it take more strength for someone to stand back or to quickly fly off the handle in the middle of, of a tense situation? Or does it take more strength to simply stand instead of throwing the first punch when someone starts accusing you? 
the Philadelphia Mounted Police has been the go-to force to bring peace and stability for the state of Pennsylvania for nearly 130 years. Every time there, there's any kind of, of crowd control needed, any time there's a riot or anything that looks like it could turn into a riot, the state of Pennsylvania deploys these people. And one time uh, there was a, a newscaster who, who came along and, and wanted to find out what was the secret to the mounted police force? What made them so successful that every time they could bring peace to a difficult situation? And so this newscaster, this anchor, asked to a police officer who was part of the team, what do you do? How do you train these horses to be so peaceful in the midst of chaotic situations? How do you bring peace and stability in that way? Do you keep the horses away from any conflict? The writer ended up saying, quite the opposite is true, actually. Instead of that, we expose the horses to every possible worst-case scenario. We pair a horse and a rider together, and then have them always riding together, and we expose them to loud sounds like gunshots, explosions, fireworks. We'll have them ride side by side right next to rush hour traffic, so that in any situation, in any difficult moment, the horse trusts the rider implicitly. And the horse is willing to walk with the rider into the most difficult of situations, even if it means certain doom. In the same way, I think God wants to use those, those challenging moments, the trials that we walk through, to build an intimacy with us so we can look to him. That Literally, we can focus on him, make eye contact with him, instead of looking at the chaos that surrounds us, and instead of sitting and dwelling in that, to actually have such depth of a relationship with God that we can trust him that he's got a greater plan at work and he's going to carry us through that next storm Amen. let's go back to the text because I think there's a couple more things that we can learn pick up in verse 8 when Herod saw Jesus he was greatly pleased because for a long time he had been wanting to see him from what he had heard about him he hoped to see him perform a sign of some sort he plied him with many questions but Jesus gave him no answer. The chief priests and the teachers of the law were standing there vehemently accusing him. Then Herod and his soldiers ridiculed and mocked him. Dressing him in an elegant robe, they sent him back to Pilate. As we arrive at the second scene, there's a couple of things that stand out. First of all, we see everyone talking in the passage, loudly even. Herod is continuously asking questions of Jesus. The Pharisees and the Sadducees, they're actually accusing Jesus, getting louder and louder, more ramped up. The, you know, the, the word that the NIV uses is vehemently opposing Jesus. That, that word actually means in the Greek that they're ratcheting up their emotions. They're getting more intense and louder with each shout. And then the soldiers, they're mocking Jesus. And here in the middle of all of that is Jesus. And Jesus simply stands silently. Have you ever felt that way as well? When you're in the middle of a trial, when things are chaotic and, and spinning out of control and, and there's anger going every which way, you ever feel like God is silent when you're crying out to him? I think there's something more we can learn here that Jesus is inviting us to learn about who God is because we cannot mistake God's silence for God's absence. Just as in the passage, Jesus was still there as 
as the Pharisees, the Sadducees, and everyone who was around was accusing him, he didn't speak, but he was still present and still listening to them. Maybe God wants to speak to us in the middle of those moments. You know, the Bible promises that he never leaves us or forsakes us. Maybe, rather, God wants to listen to us in those moments. Perhaps God is trying to tell us something through Luke's words here, that just as Jesus stood and was able to take on all of the anger, all of the rage, all of the, the frustration, the, the accusations that were coming from left and right, from pagan and religious leaders, both who were saying that they were filled with disbelief in who Jesus was. If Jesus could take that, then God can take anything. We can throw his way. We can literally give him a lot of stuff. You know, the truth is that when we walk through trials of our own, certainly produces a lot of anxiety inside of us, and that anxiety initially comes out and bubbles to the surface, at least first, as anger. And so we start asking God, why? Why have you put us in this mess? Why have you brought us to this place that's so difficult? And yet, we can find, if we truly open up to God and start telling God our problems, you know, as the Bible says, cast our cares and anxieties on God, we can find incredible levels of hope and peace that will carry us through that storm. So a few years ago, there was a pastor who would go and visit the hospital from time to time just to, to visit people in his church. But when he had spare time, he loved to go visit other people in the hospital as well. Well, one particular afternoon, he had a couple of extra hours, so he went to the hospital and asked the hospital staff if there was someone that he could visit. Turned out there was a, terminal, a man that was terminally ill who was on a certain floor, and no one had visited him in a couple of months. So he went to go check on him, and the pastor brought his Bible, said, hey, I'm a pastor. I just want to encourage you. I want to give you some hope. How can I pray for you? For 15 minutes, the man did nothing but complain. He talked all about how the hospital staff wasn't doing anything right, how his family had abandoned him, how he was just frustrated that he was even here to begin with. Like, what was going on with all of this? After 15 minutes, the pastor finally said, I just wanted to encourage you. I, I hear you that you've got a lot of anger right now, so I'll tell you what. Here's a chair. He grabbed a chair, set it right next to the side of the bed, and said, Jesus is sitting right here. Anytime you want to talk, just talk to him. He'll, he'll encourage you. And then he, the pastor walked away. He forgot about what was going on. A couple of months went by, and he ended up having to visit somebody from his church that was on the same floor. And then he remembered, oh yeah, I remember visiting that man. So he went back, and after he was done visiting his parishioner, he went to that, church, or to that room to visit the man. Two months had gone by, and the man had a completely different countenance on his face. Instead of being angry, he was smiling. And the man began to share, you know, I remember a couple months ago, and I was really angry. But then you told me that I could talk to Jesus. First, I didn't believe you. It was an empty chair. But the more time that I spent talking, Jesus met me right here in this room. He found incredible hope and incredible peace by simply sharing his life's struggles. The pastor went away encouraged. A couple of days later, that, that man actually passed away. And this is his last act. He actually took his neck, stretched it out, and, and laid it on the back of that chair. 
If you haven't guessed it yet, God is listening to us. God wants to walk with us through every problem, through every situation. There might be moments when it feels like God is silent, but he's not absent. The Bible promises he will never leave us or forsake us. There's one more point I want to look at, and so let's turn back in our Bibles. This passage is a little bit longer, so bear with me while we read through verses 13 all the way to 25. Pilate called together the chief priests, the rulers, and the people, and said to them, You brought me this man as one who was inciting the people to rebellion. I have examined him in your presence and have found no basis for your charges against him. Neither has Herod, for he sent him back to us, as you can see. He has done nothing to deserve death. Therefore, I will punish him and then release him. But the whole crowd shouted, Away with this man! Release Barabbas to us! Barabbas had been thrown in prison for insurrection in the city and for murder. Wanting to release Jesus, Pilate appealed to them again. But they kept shouting, Crucify him! Crucify him! For the third time, he spoke to them, Why? What crime has this man committed? I have found in him no grounds for the death penalty. Therefore, I will have him punished and release him. But with loud shouts, they insistently demanded that he be crucified, and their shouts prevailed. So Pilate decided to grant their demand. He released the man who had been thrown into prison, the one they asked for, and surrendered Jesus to their will. As we arrive at this third scene, a large crowd has gathered around Jesus at this point, And the crowd is all waiting to see what's going to happen. And this time, Pilate has to render a verdict. He doesn't get to get off the hook. Three times, actually, the text tells us that that Pilate tried to let Jesus go. And three times, Luke reminds us that the crowd kept pushing back. Until finally, verse 25 says that Pilate surrendered Jesus. That's such an interesting word choice that Pilate surrendered. Maybe you felt that way before, also, as you've walked through trials or struggles of your own, that, that in those moments you feel like there's nothing else that you can do, that you literally feel like you, you've exhausted every possible option, every possible off-road map, every, every scenario to try and get yourself out of that struggle, and you throw your hands up in the air and say, I guess this is it. But that was not it for Jesus. What looked like one thing was actually something else. Just like we cannot confuse the chaos that was at that scene for God's weakness. And just like we can't confuse God's silence for God's absence, we cannot confuse what appears to be an unwanted outcome from defeat. Because the truth is, is that God has a greater plan at work. It doesn't matter how difficult things get. It doesn't matter how many problems we can, we can walk ourselves into. Scripture promises us that God wants to weave all things together, good things and bad things, together for God's good purposes for those who are in Christ Jesus. Amen. A couple we are, uh, you may, uh, many of you may not know, this last week, my family lost someone that was close to us a neighbor who was actually a lot more than a neighbor four years ago, welcomed us into our home. He became a a surrogate grandfather to my children. 
And so this last week, we, we sat down our kids to try and explain to them that Mr. Chuck, as we lovingly called him, had passed away. Before I could even get the words out, my five-year-old daughter said, but daddy, but daddy, but daddy, I had a dream last night. You need to know that, that the doctors couldn't get Mr. Chuck better, but Jesus came down from heaven, grabbed Mr. Chuck by the hand, and took him up to heaven. And so he's all right. He's with Jesus. Wow. Out of the mouths of babes, right? Death one day will come for all of us. And death certainly looks like defeat. But it's not the end. Even in death, God has a greater plan at work. And it began right here, where it certainly looked like Pilate and the crowd and the Pharisees and the Sadducees, all these other people were, were acting and Jesus was passive. Quite the opposite was true. God was actively working a plan for all of eternity to rescue and redeem us from our brokenness and from our sin. Amen. Jesus willingly went to that place. And the text might have said that, that, that Pilate surrendered Jesus. Jesus is the one who really surrendered for God's plan of redemption. Amen. Jesus had redemption in his eyes and in his focus as he went to the cross, as he sacrificed himself and surrendered himself. You know, the Bible says, for the joy set before him, Jesus endured the cross. There's one more story that I want to leave you with. In World War II, you know, there were many heroes and many veterans through World War II, but a man named Desmond Thomas Doss served in the Pacific Front in World War II. He's a decorated veteran, received the Medal of Honor for incredible bravery and heroism in the face of the most intense situations. He also was a soldier who marched into battle without any weapons. On April 1st, 1945, he and his battalion deployed onto the island of Okinawa in what would be known as the Battle of Hacksaw Ridge. He was part of the, the medical detachment in that unit, and he went in um, with his team and ended up what being a trap. The, the Japanese soldiers had circled around and waited for them to land on the shores and then started coming at them from all angles. It was, this battle was probably the fiercest battle in all of World War II, certainly the fiercest battle that had the most casualties in the entire Pacific Front. Well, Doss survived the battle that day, that night. He and his team went to rest. They set up a camp. And when everyone else had gone to sleep, Doss got up. He snuck out of the camp. He actually snuck down past the trenches, down past the front lines, down into enemy territory, hoisted one American soldier on his shoulders and carried that, that soldier back to safety. No less than 75 times he did that again and again and again throughout that night. And each time he did that, he prayed, God, please let me rescue just one more person. Help me find one more person that needs safety. as Jesus was looking at the cross in our passage. 
I think he was thinking the same thing. God, let me rescue just one more person. May one more person find freedom from sin, from stuff that separates you from him. Let them find a hope in all of eternity. The truth is, is that our lives might look like a mess underneath the hood. If we open up the hood of our lives, it might look like it's, it's such a chaotic situation that it's beyond our control. But that's not the end. God has a greater plan at work. And that plan came through what Jesus did in and through the cross. The Bible says that God demonstrated his own love for us and that while we were still sinners, Jesus died for us. You know, that word sin, it's sometimes talked about a lot in churches. It's really just brokenness. It's, it's, It's a word that means the mess that we all feel like we're in all of the time. But Jesus came to take care of that mess. I love how John writes it in John 3, 16 and 17. For God so loved the world that he sent his only son, that whoever believes in him would not perish, but have everlasting life. For God didn't send his son in the world to condemn the world, but rather to save the world. God is at work even now to bring redemption, reconciliation, restoration to all of the brokenness, all of the mess inside of all of us. And so this morning, maybe you've been listening. Maybe you've been coming to the church for three weeks, three months, three years, 30 years, and you've never said yes to Jesus. Or maybe you've been coming to the church and your life has, has gotten out of control. And you need to come back to Jesus and recenter your life on him. Maybe. You said yes to Jesus a while back, but you were never baptized. This morning, Jesus is saying, I want one more person, and you're it right now. And so I want to ask something bold of you in this moment. If that's you, if you feel like, like God is speaking to you and you need to surrender to Jesus, if you know you need Jesus in your life, if you know you need to recommit your life to him, if you know that you need to be baptized, where you're at right now, I want to invite you to stand up and then meet me in the the follow-up room in 30 seconds. The worship team is going to lead us in another song of worship, but don't let this moment pass. Jesus died for you to find new hope and new life. And so if that's you, let's stand. If if that's not you, stand and worship. But if you don't know where the follow-up room is, ask somebody next to you. They will take you with you. Let's go. I'll see you there in 30 seconds. Thanks so much for listening to our weekly message podcast. At the end of each worship service on Sunday morning, I offer a simple blessing, and I offer that blessing to you today. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make His face shine upon you. And may God grant you peace, both now and forever. Amen.